As small business owners, we are busy people, right? We have places to go, meetings to attend, projects to launch, new markets to conquer, and so on. However, when's the last time you step back to strategically set a date for one of these important activities? That's just what my next guest, New York Times bestseller Dan Pink did when he wrote When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Dan dives deep into the secrets as they pertain to the day-to-day activities of small business leaders and even shares how he uses a nappuccino to prepare for our interview. With Dan Pink, it's usually informative, unexpected, and fun. And this interview is no exception. Listen in. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of my quest for the best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Dan Pink. Daniel Pink is the author of six provocative books, including his newest, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, which has appeared for more than four months on the New York Times bestseller list. His other books include the long-running New York Times bestseller, A Whole New Mind, and Drive, as well as To Sell is Human. His books have won multiple awards and have been translated into 39 languages. Dan lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife and three children. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's a pleasure. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? You know, it's, it's kind of weird because not anybody I've ever met in my entire life. One of the people who inspired me the most was a fellow named John McPhee, who's a writer. When I was a kid, growing up, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I read a lot about sports. I'm still a sports fan. And uh, I read a lot about sports. And finally, one of the librarians at the local library uh, pushed me over to a section of books by a guy named John McPhee, who wrote about sports in a much more kind of sophisticated literary way. And when I read those books, things like A Sense of Where You Are or Levels of the Game, I said, huh, this is what I might want to do. And those books you read, did it actually start to influence your writing or your research? Or was it just your thinking at that point? I think it was just my thinking because I was a kid. I was maybe like 12 years old or you know, 11, 12 years old. I spent a lot of time as a kid in libraries. And being in libraries gave me a sense that the world was far bigger than the town that I grew up in and that there were a lot of interesting things going out there in the world. And these books, which you could go and get for free, were portals into these worlds. And so that, you know, more than any other person, it was really the institution of a public library that shaped me more than anything else. In fact, the whole state of Ohio, the way Ohio finances its libraries, has a very, very, very strong library system. And so had I grown up somewhere else, I don't know if I'd be, I would have become a writer. But having grown up in a place with very strong libraries, I ended up growing up and becoming a writer. That's terrific. Three cheers for library funding and support. When you think about your work today, what is it that inspires or guides you to select the topics and projects that you work on? It's a mix of things, Bill. First of all, I want to do something that I'm curious about because writing a book is so unbelievably difficult and painful that you have to pick a topic that you really enjoy, that you really are in love with, uh, rather than something that you kind of sort of like because most days writing books are kind of unpleasant. And that means you have to be working on an idea, working on a topic that you really believe in, that you think is important, that you find interesting. So that's that's one thing. The second thing is, you know, am I saying something new? There are a lot of books out there that just say the same thing that everybody else has said, or the same thing even that the whole that writer has said. I want to say something new. And then I also want the book to be valuable to readers. If, if I can find a topic that I, I really enjoy, that I'm, that I'm really curious about, that I really and I want to spend years on, and I have something entirely new to say about it, and it's going to be valuable to readers, then it's probably a green light. But what's interesting is that how few 
ideas, topics, subjects actually pass all three gates. Do you often find yourself saying, well, maybe this idea, and then you start running through your checklist and say, nope, not going to do that. Absolutely. I've done that many times. What I do for every book is I write a book proposal. A book proposal is essentially a you know a 30-page 30, 30 document that says what the book is about, why I'm the right person to write it, who's going to buy it, why it's different from anything else. And there have been times where I've written book, entire book proposals and said, you know what? I don't want to work on this. This is not good enough. So yeah, I have a very, very high bar for the topics that I choose. So take us back to when you started writing when. What is it that clicked into place that checked all those boxes for you and you realize this is not only something that's new and you have something interesting to say about it, but it's going to be valuable for the audience? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it's a, great, it's a great question because it's a good example of this process, which to me, Bill, it's not, it's not like this process that I just outlined is as finely honed and specific as I suggested. It's, it's a little bit mushier, but for, for this latest book, when I actually wrote two other book proposals first, I didn't feel like they were good enough, interesting enough. And the reason that what got me into this topic was that I was making all kinds of timing decisions in my own life. I actually looked around for a book that I could read to help me make better decisions about when I should do things. And it, to my surprise, it didn't exist. Then I started looking around and saying, oh, I wonder if there's any research on this. And I started frobbing around and saw that there was actually a huge amount of research out there on this topic. And as I started reading through it, I said, whoa, this is pretty interesting. And then, as I said, I started writing the book proposal. And, and it was then I said, whoa, this is really hanging together. This is really interesting. I want to know more about this topic. So in a weird way, this topic ticked all three boxes because it was a book that I wanted to read. Um, but since no one else had written it, I had to write it. And was there a specific thing that drove you initially to say, I wonder if there's a better time or another in order to do this particular thing? Was it exercise? Was it submitting proposals? Was there some one particular thing that kind of was the genesis? No, it was everything. Because I realized that, I, that, that these timing decisions were threaded through my entire days, weeks, and years. So, I mean, exercise is a great example, Bill. Like, I, I like to exercise. I try to exercise pretty regularly. But I didn't have a good sense of, okay, what's the best time of day for me to exercise? So that was one thing. What's the best time of day for me to be doing my writing? But even broader than that, it's so when should I start a new project? When should I abandon a new project that's not working? And so there are all of these questions that I had in my own work and life that I was approaching in a very sloppy, guesswork, patchwork kind of way. And, and I found that frustrating. And so I figured that if I found that frustrating, if I had these questions, then lots of other people would have these questions. One of the things that I think of is I think a lot of times people believe that they're, they're more unique than they really are, that... <laughs> And so I, I actually like to extrapolate from my own experiences because I'm, like most people, pretty ordinary. And so I figured, whoa, if I'm wrestling with these questions, other people probably are too. If I want to know the answers to these questions, other people probably want to know as well. How true. Now, I know that everyone listening to this is wondering about some of the key timings for things. Having spoken to you about, about this topic previously, I know that you really want people to know that one of the most beneficial things is about when to have procedures done in a hospital <laughs> or perhaps when not to. Can you share a little bit about it? Sure, absolutely. It's a, it's a great, you know, I, I laugh because it's, it's an interesting thing to, to fasten on in the, the book, but it's a really good thing to fasten on because in my household, I, I don't know if my family members uh, willingly go to the hospital for or to an important doctor appointment in the afternoon, period. What the research shows is that going to the hospital in the afternoon is more dangerous than going earlier in the day. So let's say you're having surgery, four times greater chance of anesthesia errors at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m. If you look at colonoscopies, doctors find half as many polyps in afternoon exams as they do in morning exams. 
If you look at hand washing in hospitals, massive deterioration in hand washing in hospitals in the afternoon compared to the morning. If you look at physicians prescribing unnecessary antibiotics, they're much more likely to do that in afternoon appointments than they are in morning appointments. If we widen things out a little bit, what this research reveals is perhaps the most important aspect of at least the first part of the book, which is that our brain power does not stay static over the course of the day. Our brain power changes throughout the day. It changes in material ways so that the difference between the daily high point and the daily low point can be significant. And the best time to do something depends on what it is that you're doing. So what I liked reading about part of the distinctions were that not only are different times of day advantageous for different activities, but even different purposes of a given activity. Exactly. Let's circle back to exercise, for example. There are best times to do exercise depending upon your goals. Isn't that right? Absolutely right. That's precisely it. So if you ask, like, what's the best time to exercise, it really does come back to that question. Okay, what are you trying to accomplish? And what we know from the research is this, that morning exercise is good for certain kinds of goals. Afternoon, early evening exercise is better for other kinds of goals. So morning exercise is better for uh, habit formation, probably because you're less likely to get interrupted at seven in the morning than at four in the afternoon. Morning exercise seems to be slightly better for weight loss. Although there's some interesting research coming out showing that exercise is actually not as advantageous. Losing weight is really, really hard. So, but morning exercise seems to be slightly better for weight loss. Exercise, a particularly aerobic exercise, gives you a pretty enduring mood boost. And that mood boost can last, you know, 10, 12 hours. And so if you exercise early in the day, you get that mood boost throughout the day. If you exercise, say, at seven, eight at night, you're going to sleep through some of that mood boost. Late afternoon, early evening exercise is good for other things. It is actually better for avoiding injury because our body temperature is higher, so we're literally more warmed up. It's better for performance on certain things. So at, at that time of day, late afternoon, early evening, our lung function is higher, our speed is greater, our hand-eye coordination is better. It's also better for enjoyment. People report enjoying afternoon exercise much more than afternoon early evening exercise much more than morning exercise. So it really depends on your goals. Me, I basically, after a couple of attempts to do morning exercise earlier in my life, I have settled on the afternoon and early evening exercise because I enjoy it a lot more. And when I enjoy it, I'm more likely to do it. That's a key point, not to do something out of sense of obligation or strictness, but do something that's going to last because if exercise is something important to you, you want it to be something that you could sustain. Exactly. So let's talk about starting a new project. What are some of the beneficial times for starting a new project and some of the research-supported reasons for that? Sure. There is uh, some, some very, very interesting research on timing in, in precisely that episodic way that you, that you mentioned about how, how the beginnings affect us how do midpoints affect us? How do endings affect us? And so there's a very interesting phenomenon uh, called the fresh start effect. It was uncovered by three scientists uh, where you are, Bill, up in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. Here's what they say about the fresh start effect. There are certain dates of the year that are what they call, and other researchers call, temporal landmarks. Temporal landmarks. These dates stand out in time the way that physical landmarks stand out in space. And so when we think about car trip somewhere. These, we look for landmarks, and these landmarks get us to slow down, orient ourselves. But temporal landmarks have another benefit in that they trigger this really weird form of mental accounting. So that when we hit certain dates, these fresh start dates, we will essentially open up a fresh ledger on ourselves, the same way that a business would open up a fresh ledger at the beginning of a quarter or the beginning of a year. 
And so we, we, we relegate our imperfect selves to the past and open up a fresh ledger on our new and better selves. What this means, and the research from Heng Chen Dai and Katie Milkman and Jason Reese has shown that we are more likely to start a behavior change, going to the gym, eating better, starting a new productivity regime on certain kinds of fresh start dates, which means that it's better to start these, the new behavior change on or a new project on a Monday rather than a Thursday, on the first of the month rather than the ninth of the month, on the day after your birthday rather than the day before your birthday. And so even the decision about when we start a new project can have an effect on whether you're going to actually sustain that project. And again, I, I like how you emphasize that it's not a make or break but it really contributes to your chances of success the more that you can line up these factors in your favor. That's a very, very important point because you know we spend a lot of time focused in our business. You know, you think about a small business owner, she's trying to figure out, okay, what do I do, right? And, and she almost certainly has a to-do list. She is intentional about what she's doing. She's intentional about hiring, who she's gonna do stuff with. But when it comes to when we do things, we're not that intentional. We think it doesn't matter and it matters. It matters a lot. It has a big effect, but it doesn't like, it doesn't, nothing guarantees anything. What we're doing here in our businesses is take small steps to improve our odds, but nothing, nothing is a lock as any entrepreneur will tell you. What the research shows, and I think this is very important in daily timing, especially for entrepreneurs and their hiring, is that time of day, just time of day alone explains about 20% of the variance in how people perform on well, a brain-oriented workplace tasks, basically a typical kind of white-collar work. When we think about variance, variance is just, you know, why are some people better at their jobs than others? And there are all kinds of reasons for that. Some people are smarter than others. They're more conscientious than others. They're better trained than others. They have more social advantage than others. But what this body of research tells us is that 20% of the explanation is time of day. And that's something you can do something about. And so if business owners start helping their folks do the right work at the right time based on science, not based on intuition, not based on guesswork, not based on folklore, not based on default, but based on science, they are going to increase, as you say, Bill, they are going to increase their odds of success. So that goes for thinking about when to begin a project and maybe do more coding or more writing or more artistic work. Or does it apply also to making judgments and evaluations as it does to creating new work, Dan? Absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of research on decision-making in time of day. And, you know, and, and basically what it shows is that, again, early to mid-afternoons are pretty bad times for people to be making decisions. It's sort of part of the explanation of the doctors. A lot of it depends on what kind of decisions we're making. And what we know, again, just to take three steps back, is that most of us move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery a peak, a trough, a recovery. Most of us, about 75 to 80% of us, move through the day in, in that order. We have a peak early in the day, we have a trough in the middle of the day, early to mid-afternoon, and we have a recovery in the late afternoon and early evening. Now, people who are night owls, that's about a fifth of the population, uh, they're much more complicated. They hit their peak much, 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 much later in the day, after, late afternoon, early evening, well into the evening. And what the research tells us is that we're better at doing analytic work, work that requires vigilance and focus and heads down attention during our peak. We're better off doing insight work, work that benefits from kind of a looser mood, things that are more iterative, more, more like brainstorming, for instance. We're better off doing those during our recovery period, which again, for most of us is late in the afternoon and early evening. And then this trough period in the middle of the day, that ends up being a pretty bad time for performance all across the board. So we're better off doing our administrative work during that trough period. 
let's design an ideal process based just on time of day for making a new hire in a marketing department. Okay. At what point should the job description be crafted? At what point should the interviews take place? And at what point should the interviews happen and make the final decision? Great. Let's, that's a great question. So let's just take, take your steps one by one. You have to write a job description and brainstorm about all the responsibilities that person would have. Okay. So let's say that you have a team that is figuring out what the main responsibilities are going to be of this job. All right. And you want to actually be a little bit, you want to be open to the possibilities. I would have that brainstorming session in general. Again, it's going to be, it depends on how many morning people, how many evening people you have. But assuming that your workplace is the typical mix, uh, which is, you know, more heavily morning and middle people than evening people. I would have the brainstorming session late in the day or in the very early evening. What we know is that our mood rises in the late afternoon and early evening. Uh, we're in a good mood, but uh, we're, we're a little bit more freewheeling, a little bit less inhibited. And so that makes it a good time for brainstorming. Then I would take the results of that brainstorming session and I would give that to whoever is writing it. Now, writing is a much more much more analytic kind of job. You're trying to make the words march in order. So you want to give that to whoever your writer is at the time of his or her highest vigilance. Let that person do that work during his or her peak. For 80% of us, that's going to be the morning. For Al's, it's going to be later in the day. If you're going to brainstorm the ideas in the, in the afternoon, and let's say that you have a writer who is more of a middle person or a morning person, have that person do the writing. We got that job description out and, and ready to go. We give a deadline of saying, have that done by, say, 1130. So then administratively, we could do that after lunch and post it to 60 different online websites because that would be a good trough activity, wouldn't it? Well, maybe. What I would want to do on the posting is the following. I would collect the places you're going to post in the trough period because that's fairly administrative. In, in terms of posting it, I would actually post it on a Monday rather than any other day of the week because that's the day that most people are going to be looking. Yeah. And so you're going to have more fresh eyes on a Monday rather than another day of the week. I'm agnostic about the day of the week that you create it, mm -hmm. but for the posting, I want you to put it up on a Monday. There's no advantage, say, of putting it up, I was going to say, on a Sunday, just so it's early in the queue on Monday, but Monday would be the day to have it there so that it gets fresh eyes. I get the point. In general, now, the thing is that you have information on various job boards and whatnot that contradicts that, then go with the specifics of that particular job board. But in general, you're going to have more people looking, trying to make that fresh start on a Monday. And say that you had a group of people who were evaluating the resumes that came back as replies to that you would encourage them to review the resumes during what period of the day? Probably during their peak, because I want them to be pretty analytic about it. So for the owls, that's late in the day. For the larks and the people in the middle, fairly early in the day. Let me just amplify that point. What Dan's talking about is making sure that you identify that, first of all, not everyone falls into these same categories, and that people could pretty much select and know what their energy is, as where they fall into either a lark, where they're a morning person, energy routine, or a night owl, where they have a more late in the day shift of when their peak trough and recovery takes place. And so it's something to be very aware of that not many business owners are savvy to at this point. And that's important because not everyone has their timing set up the same way. And boy, we all know the, the misery of being asked to do something hard and analytic when you're at a low point in your energy. Exactly. And that, that's the key. And we have to go back to first principles here. Again, our brain power doesn't remain static over the course of the day. It changes. Now, that's different from other parts of our being, our physical and, our, our physical and in total being. 
So for instance, our heart rate declines, obviously, when we're sleeping. But throughout the waking hours, there, there aren't major differences in our heart rate over the course of the day, assuming, you know, assuming we're not doing aerobic exercise. But there are differences in our brain power, that our cognitive abilities change over the course of the day. And you can either acknowledge that and steer your work to take advantage of it, or you can deny that and actually find yourself doing the wrong work at the wrong time. So here's a really interesting point with this example we're working through, Dan. How do you look to bring people in at a time when it's their best, when you might have awareness of these different energy cycles, but the interviewees may not? And is there a question that you could ask uh, maybe the first interview to make sure that subsequent interviews are able to bring out the best in that candidate? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. And it's, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. So we're back to So we're now finding this person for the marketing department and we're doing interviews. There's not a foolproof way to do that. One of the things that I would caution in job interviews, which has very little to do with the timing, is this. Unstructured job interviews, a typical kind of job interview where you go into someone's office and you have a chat. Those job interviews, the research tells us, have very, very, very little predictive power. They're not very useful forms of screening and finding good candidates. What works better are structured interviews where you have multiple people asking the same questions to the candidate. That, that's one thing. And second thing is actually giving them an assignment that simulates what they'll actually be doing on the job. So for instance, a, a long time ago, I was a political speech writer. In that trade, what often happens when you interview for a job is, yeah, you go in for an interview, but they also give you a packet and say, here's some facts, here's what's going on, write a sample speech. I know I've spoken to business leaders about this theory about the peak trough and recovery energy cycles. And one of them just quipped and said, can it all be overcome with the right cup of espresso? That's a great question, actually. And the answer is in the very short term, kind of, sort of, but enduringly, not so much. It is possible that especially during that trough period, that you can get a little extra boost with caffeine. But the benefits are relatively short-lived. These diurnal patterns, which are part of our nature, it's very difficult to counteract them entirely with drugs. That said, there, there's, you know, there is some research on caffeine, some interesting research on caffeine. And among the things that it says is that for, the, for maximum wakefulness in the morning, you should not have a cup of coffee first thing. You should wait maybe 60 to 90 minutes before having that coffee. Because when you wake up, you begin producing a stress hormone known as cortisol. And cortisol indeed is one of the things that helps you wake up. And caffeine can interfere with the production of cortisol. So what you want is you want to have your cortisol go up to wake you up. And then when it starts declining in maybe an hour, 90 minutes after waking up, then hit it with some caffeine. Uh, there's also, you know, afternoon caffeine is not the worst thing in the world. And it can actually arrest a little bit of the decline. So I have nothing against caffeine. It's just that these diurnal patterns established over, you know, all of human evolution are pretty ferocious opponents. You're saying that we're taking on a pretty big trend with a cup of coffee and, and hoping to win. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not that, I mean, your listeners won't know this, but because of um, some scheduling constraints, uh, I had to do this interview with you at two in the afternoon, which is not an ideal time of day. But I knew that going in and I said, okay, I got to talk to Bill. I got to make sure that I'm not at my absolute worst. So I took a short walk before doing this interview and I did have a cup of coffee right before. And so I'm hoping that will paper over the decline that I'm ex typically experienced this time of day. And I think that's a great point, that exercise also is a way to do it in addition to or instead of coffee. Sure. There's some very good research on just breaks in general. And breaks are very good for us. Uh, we've gotten breaks largely wrong in America. And particularly some of these 
you know, like the hard charging entrepreneurs, the, the business owners who are just pressed all the time, who are trying to do more, who are trying to do more with less. My experience is that they don't take very many breaks. And what the evidence says is that they should be taking more breaks and they should be taking certain kinds of breaks. What do you mean by different types of breaks? That the research shows is that certain kinds of breaks are more restorative than other kinds of breaks. So for instance, a break where you're outside is is more restorative than a break where you're inside. A break with other people is more restorative than breaks on our own. A break where you're moving, as you were saying before, Bill, is more effective than breaks where you are stationary. A break where you are fully detached, you don't have your phone with you, you're not talking about work, are more restorative than breaks where you are semi-detached. The big point here is that we need to think of breaks as part of our performance, not a deviation from performance, that professionals take breaks, amateurs don't take breaks. And we need to get over this idea that the way to get more done is simply to power through. It's not true. Breaks make us better. Certain kinds of breaks make us even better. If we commit ourselves, especially the business owners who, again, are just running around like crazy people. They have so much to do. But if they could take, your listeners could take one break every afternoon for 15 minutes, take a walk outside with someone they like, without their phone, talking about something other than work, they're going to get more done that day. I could speak from experience that when I schedule 10 or 15 minutes in the morning or afternoon, it does help me refocus when I come back. Absolutely. It's weird because like, like at some level, we have this business culture that says that breaks are for wimps, that breaks are, you know, only wimps take breaks, only amateurs take breaks. And this is not, this is not right. I mean, it's just, it's false. What the research tells us is that the highest performers actually are more likely to take breaks and that there's no moral virtue in trying to power through. There's moral virtue in doing good work and making a contribution. And the way to do that is to not to power through, but to take a break. You know, it's similar to what happened with the whole world of sleep in the last 20 years. So 20 years ago, people who pulled all-nighters were heroes. And now, thanks to the science of sleep penetrating our consciousness, we know that people who pull all-nighters are fools. Like the next, they're, they're hurting their performance. And it's the same, same thing that's happening with breaks. Listen, I've been self-employed for 20 years. I know how difficult it is to run your own operation and how many demands that there are. So let's start small. Every afternoon, one 15-minute break, take a walk outside, leave your phone behind, go with someone else, particularly someone you like, and you're going to come back and you're going to perform better than you would have had you just powered through that period instead. So now let's hit everyone who's scratching their heads saying, breaks, huh? That might be something we can do. And let's hit them with the research that talks about <laughs> that people don't think of as being very productive at work, naps. Yeah. Again, naps aren't for everybody, but, the, but there's a lot of research on naps. And what it shows is that naps are pretty darn good for us. But the most effective naps are extraordinarily short, 10 to 20 minutes long. Napping longer than 20 minutes, people begin to develop what's called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, boggy feeling you get when you've taken a nap in the middle of the day. So naps are effective, but the most effective naps are very short naps, 10 to 20 minutes long. You know, people, there's all kinds of research, particularly in, in high stress jobs like air traffic controllers and law enforcement, showing that these super short naps improve performance after, after the nap. And when we look at this downturn in performance, especially in the early afternoon, that goes across many, many domains, not only healthcare that we talked about before, we see it in schools, we see it in academic performance, we see it in certain measures of corporate performance, uh, we see it in 
some of the figures on traffic accidents. Uh, you know, think about NAPS as a subset of brakes. And for some people, this can be really, really incredibly effective. You can, so if you can spare a little bit more time, say 25 minutes, you can take the ideal nap, which is to, which I do periodically, I don't do it regularly, which I wear, I will sit in a chair, I will set my timer on my phone for 25 minutes, and straight away I will drink a cup of coffee. Then I will close my eyes, put on noise-canceling headphones, and try to take a nap. Now, at this point, I can usually fall asleep in maybe 10 minutes. And so I fall asleep in 10 minutes, the alarm goes off in 25 minutes from the time I sat down. That gives me a 15-minute nap, which is right in that sweet spot of length. But I had a cup of coffee right beforehand. Back to our friend caffeine, it takes about 25 minutes for caffeine to get into our bloodstream. And so at the moment I'm waking up, I get a second boost of caffeine. Uh, this is what's called a nappuccino. Again, there's been just a huge amount of research on sleep and a growing amount of research on breaks. And at the, at the juncture of those two bodies of research is uh, fascinating and very compelling research on naps. Short naps are really, really, really good for us. So are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Of course. All right. So Dan, what are one or two components of your daily routine for success? Uh, I try to exercise uh, pretty regularly, usually in the late afternoon and early evening. So that is one of the most important things. I feel like I feel better. I think better when I exercise. Each day, I try to focus on what I call what what people call the MIT, my MIT, my most important task. And so when I get into the office, I do I figure out what's the most important thing I have to do that day, and I do that first. And I find that really effective too. So if I can do my MIT and get exercise in the course of a day, it's probably going to be okay. What's the easiest or least expensive change you've made in your personal or professional life in the last six months? That's had the biggest payoff. I would say that it has been continuing to not bring my phone into the office during the key portion of my day. Where do you leave it? Well, I work, probably some of your solopreneurs, I work at home. I work in the garage behind my house. So my garage is the office. And so I just leave the phone in the house and come to my garage and leave the phone behind. What would you say is one of the most important habits or routines or beliefs that you've stopped or eliminated in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure and personal satisfaction? I have cut back significantly on my consumption of social media, significantly. I have probably, in the last six months compared to the previous six months, I probably cut my time on Twitter by 90%. One of my favorite quotes in, in your book is, when we reach a midpoint, sometimes we slump, other times we jump. What do you mean by that? This goes back to some of the research on the episodic nature of our lives. So we, beginnings have one effect on us. Endings have another effect on us, but often invisible are midpoints. And, and again, if something has a beginning and an end, it has a midpoint. And midpoints have this dual effect, as you laid out. Sometimes getting to a midpoint makes us sag, saying, oh, God. Other times it makes us wake up and, and really get going. For me, being conscious of a, that, that a project or anything is at a midpoint is a way to recognize and just simply recognizing that and acknowledging that. And then there's, this little, there's another technique based on some research showing that when people feel like they're slightly behind at the midpoint, uh, they kick a little harder in the second half. Acknowledge midpoints, uh, use them to wake up rather than roll over. And one way to do that is to uh, imagine that you're a little bit behind at the midpoint. I've sometimes done that just as a way to motivate myself and, and just say I'm further behind than I actually am just to press a little bit harder. And that seems to work. You know, there are various kinds of ways that we can trick ourselves. And, uh, and so I am, I am absolutely for benevolent self-trickery. <laughs> well, Dan, you've been so generous in sharing with us on my quest for the best. I want to thank you for sharing how John McPhee was an early influence in your life, how you talked about the criteria you use for selecting a project 
as to whether it's going to be something that's new, whether it's something you can really stick with. And knowing that a lot of days writing are going to be kind of unpleasant, so you have to be able to push through and have that commitment to that big topic in order to be successful. You talked about how there's a beginning, midpoint, and end point of a lot of different aspects of our lives. We talked about one of the key principles about how brain power changes throughout the day. And the more people understand that and start to look at the implications for their work life, the better off they'll be able to do and behave and perform with this insight. We talked about how we're looking to find ways that align and contribute to the probability of our success, not make or break points. Looking at the peak trough and recovery aspects of our day so that we can line them up with the activities that are appropriate for them. And we talked about the midpoint effect and nappuccinos and, and how useful that could be for people who want to refresh at the during the trough of their day. So for these reasons and so many more, Dan, thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. It was a pleasure being with you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Dan, where can we find out more about you and your work online? Your listeners can just go to www.danpink.com. That's great. And any words or thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Well, I mean, one of the things on, on this topic of when is that time pervades our lives. We are temporal creatures ourselves. We're moving through time. You know, the more that we, the more we take it seriously, the more we're going to be able to work a little smarter and live a little better. And stay the heck away from doctors in the afternoon. Absolutely. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments, and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.